Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day. Hi, thanks so much for your company. I hope you're ready for some good old-fashioned rock, because my guest today has been part of one of Britain's longest-running bands, a group that managed to notch up more chart hits than any rock band in the UK. Any idea who I'm referring to? Absolutely, it was status quo, and I'm very pleased to introduce you to the band's original drummer, John Coglin, who today plays with his own band called John Coglin's Quo. We did a little gig recently and it was great. It, what it is, it's playing some of the close stuff, some of my hits, and turning it into like a slightly different jazz feel. And it, it's worked out very well. You've certainly come a long way, haven't you? You've played every genre of music in your time. Yeah, I, I think I have. Well, we go to what we call the Old Boys Lunch twice a year in London and it's all musicians from our past. And I played with lots of them and Diesel Band, there was um, Partners in Crime, there was also all sorts of different things. And I played with Noel Redding and Eric Bell and all loads of different musicians and just how it was then, it was great. I'm not a little boy, I've lived alone and love so many more. You're still as passionate about music as you were when you first set out? Yeah, I think so. I, I, someone said, because on, on my website there was a little thing saying, you know, John Coggins retiring. Actually, I hate that word. And I said, don't be silly, I'm not doing that. I just still like playing. And I think every musician will tell you that I think once you start playing, you enjoy it. If someone says to me, would you rather record or, or play to a live audience? I've mentioned this many times. I'd rather do a live gig and, and be in a studio for days on end, you know. But having said that, as you know, we've made, I was involved with 14 albums, so Bob Young told me recently. I didn't realise I'd recorded so many. Yeah, I want to talk to you about all of those albums. Explain to us how Match Thick Men came about, because that was really a breakthrough hit, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Francis um, Rossi wrote that at home. And he said, because of the family rule there, it was written in his toilet at home. <laughs> Men often say that's where they do their best thinking. Yeah, well, I suppose it's the only place to get a peace and quiet, you know, unless you've got a music room with a big lock on it. that you'd prefer to be playing a live gig rather than in the recording studio why is that what's the rush that you get from playing in front of people oh it's just lovely but you know they all come to see you they all come to see the band rather at the end they're all cheering and shouting and screaming for more it's a lovely feeling it's great it's like you've entertained those people for an hour and a half or two hours depending how long you play for and it's just so nice to say well that was nice. And see you after the show and they, you know, shake hand, wonderful autograph or something. And it is so nice. And uh, uh, like being in a studio, I remember when we did the choir albums, you know, I'd, I'd go to the hotel or whatever and try to go to bed. I had this 
song in my head that's been going around for hours, you know, the same song. I remember times of sort of recording it, 20, doing 20 takes, then finding out we listened back to all the take and we actually chose the second one. You know, we didn't need to play all those others. Some people prefer, some guys prefer to be in the studio than be on, on the road, but I'd, I'd rather play live concerts. I remember quite recording in Holland many, many years ago and we heard this massive bang, like a, like a massive explosion. What the hell was that? We stopped playing, of course, and the lights went out. And what happened, I remember this, that we walked outside, all the office people that were in the studio, they all run outside. And what happened, it had been a thunderstorm. The lightning hit a tree, and I could still picture this tree in the outside of the front doors, and the tree was black all down the middle. It split in the middle and went, electricity went through the tree and under the ground. So, you know, such were lucky. We weren't all blown to pieces. But I've never forgotten that. We wondered what it was. It was repaired. We carried on, you know, as you do. <laughs> you were pretty young at the time, weren't you? It wouldn't take anything too seriously when we were younger. It's only when you get a bit older that you realise the consequences that could have been. Talking about we, when you were younger, John, is it true that you left school at 15 to start an apprenticeship as a mechanic, but you attended drumming lessons under a guy called Lloyd Ryan, who actually taught Phil Collins the drums at the at the time too. Is that right? Well, what happened was um, my dad got me this job and um, I spent, I don't know how many months there, and I realised doing this job, uh, helping the mechanics out, you get dirty, filthy hands and grease and covered in oil. And many moons after that, I left and did something else. And then 1968, 67, 68, Pictures of Maximum Men was recorded and released. And we ended up having to go up to Manchester and uh, do Top of the Pops. How did you get to play in the band anyway in the first place? When I was at school, I, there was a guy in my class called Stephen Ainsworth, and he said, John, you like aeroplanes? So I said, yeah, I do, especially military planes. He said, well, don't tell the rest of the class. I'm in the Air Cadets, Air Training Corps. And so we cycled up there. He took me up there next weekend on our cycles. And I met the, the commanding officer. I got measured up for a uniform. My dad was proud. My granddad was proud. Oh, you know, lovely. You're going to join the Air Force. And anyway, so we put a little group together in the squadron. It's just three of us. Some two guys kept coming in saying, can we listen? Anyway, so this happened about two or three times. And they said, look, are you doing anything, John, with this? And I said, no, not really. We're just in the cadets. Would you come and join our band, which I did the following weekend? And my dad took me down there and bring me drums. I don't know how he did it because my dad didn't have a car. He must have borrowed one or got a taxi or something. Oh, it's Francis right, Ross and Alan Lancaster, by the way. And they said, oh, John's arrived with his dad. They must be able to have a few bob because they've turned up in a taxi. <laughs> that band was called the Scorpions, wasn't it? Well, I think it was called the Scorpions. I think it was called something else. And then we settled on, on a name called the Spectres. And we did release the Spectre's name of a song called I Have Nothing, which was a Shirley Bassey single. And we did a rock version of it. And I, I still think it's being played somewhere on, on some record player somewhere. I, I called Pat Barlow come up with this name called Status Quo and we thought oh that's all I suppose that would do we don't know you know but previous to that before we were Status Quo we did we won a competition to go to play in Butlins uh, for six weeks it was a summer holiday camp in those days you weren't allowed to stay on the camp if you was an entertainer you had to get a B&B which really wasn't nice you know right. <laughs> so you got on immediately with the other guys yeah it was Francis Rossi and Lancaster uh, a guy called Jesse Wolski, who's, uh, he was English, but his parents were Polish, I believe. Then Jess, I think, had enough and wanted, just left, and we got Roy Lyons to play keyboards. He was on Matchstick Man, stayed with the band for a few years. Then he just, I remember he was travelling on a train somewhere years ago, and Roy said, I think I've had enough of this. And so he 
got up to the, the the rail thing where you put your bag, and he got on, he walks up the train. We thought, oh, he's going to get a coffee or something, you know, in the in the in the restaurant car. And it was hilarious. And, and the train's pulling out of the station. Then we saw him walking down the platform, waving goodbye. He got off. He'd left the band. We played a gig that night without keyboards. Without yeah, when someone said, oh, God, that band's so much better without keyboards. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Where did the name Status Quo come from? I think it was a manager at the time. I don't know where he found the name, but he said it means as you are or something. So we stuck with the name. Then there was ice in the sun. My chair changed the whole thing. That was great. We grew hair long, put well jeans and T-shirts. Previous to that, it was all like... Uh, Frilly shirts and jackets and, you know, silly coloured trousers and trying to be pop stars. I mean, I'm, God forbid, you know, we, we got rid of that. I saw her talking now, my ears were burning. Her feet started walking now, they started turning. My eyes were half open, but she didn't see me there. of the uh, that image and uh, Bob Young said play colleges and universities change the whole music um, set and we just played the blues and some rock and roll and it, it works out well. It worked out better than you could have ever imagined really didn't it? Yeah it was great and uh, we felt much more at home doing that and I remember there was one place we played it was some college or university somewhere years ago and this character came up to us backstage and said you know, my name's whatever it was. I introduced the band, and we'd all said in the meeting that we wanted to just be one of those bands that just walks on and plays without being announced, you know, cool, you know, if he signed Love love and Dubs and all that. And this character insisted on announcing the band, so we thought, oh, God, you know, OK, let him do it. Anyway, so I remember this gig was full of, you could smell cannabis at this college university. And it was, you know, if you just put your nose on stage, you can go, oh, that's nice. And you get high. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, he, this character walks on stage and he, sit, he gets a round of applause from his uh, students and everything else, and they'll cheer. Hello, guys. And I think he says something like, uh, welcome to tonight's show. I know you've been waiting for this band for years. I've managed to get them, ladies and gentlemen. Will you give a big welcome to They're Here? And he forgot who we were. <laughs> he forgot the band's name. <laughs> yeah, and he was so insistent on announcing stage of Sky. He, he was obviously wongered out of it with smelling the dope. And he, really? he, he just thought, oh, yeah, it was great. We went down very well that night. drummers the other day so a friend of mine I was, I was lucky enough to um, in my career meet all the drummers that I've admired like uh, Brian Bennett from the Shadows Brian's great I was with Brian the other day at the old boys lunch in London uh, Bobby Elliott from the Hollies um, oh, there's a load of Simon Phillips 
I met Ginger. My favourite out of, of the lot was Buddy Rich. I was very lucky to spend two hours with Buddy Rich many years ago because I was playing Premier Drums. Anyway, we went overseas concert and I think it was something like Corey was in Manchester. He was in, I think, something like Preston Guildhall with his sellout concert. We were our sellout concert. And so we walked into the concert hall and his road said, John, your guest is here. And he I was lovely. We spent, we spent two hours talking about drums and touring the world. And we got on a, like a house on fire because I, I was told he can be really sort of, you know, he could be quite awkward. And there was a girl there interviewing him and me. And she said, um, well, buddy, you're the best drummer in the world. What do you think of this long hair bloke? I was down here, then, right. you know, playing in a rock band. And I remember this to this day. He was very kind and he said, well, man, there's no need for that. He's doing his job. I'm doing mine. Yes. Good. He said, John, have a play. Play my drums. Oh, no. And I sat on his kit and I tapped away, you know, trying to do something that I I could get away with. And he, he said, that sounds great, John. Yeah, you know. He said, we better go and have a drink. Anyway, I knew at that stage that Buddy never allowed any of his band uh, to drink me. alcohol. Oh. Yeah, no, not, no alcohol at all. So we drank. I've I got a picture here somewhere of us toasting each other with a cup of coffee, you know. It's lovely. <laughs> but the reason we got on, I think, was because I didn't ask him, could you show me how to do a set? And I just think we, we just spoke about things that happening in the world. It was lovely. And I was never forgotten that. It was great. I'm chatting with John Coglin from Status Quo. John, can you describe what it was like in the 60s? It was really the heyday of music, particularly in Britain, wasn't it? It was when everybody was coming up and the scene was just happening. Oh, it was great. I mean, I remember Status Quo, we supported Jerry Lewis, the Kinks. We did loads of tours. We did Gene Pitnitzer on the early days with Eamon Corner, Don Partridge various other people. I remember one thing going we did, which was, I don't you'll ever see it again, but it was a, a tour of Australia, flying from Heathrow, London, to Sydney, I think it was, with Status Quo, Slade, Lindisfarne, and a band called Caravan on the same tour. It was hilarious. And when we did the internal flying in Australia on Ansett Airlines, we found out that someone had put three or four detectives on the plane. And they always sat at the back, and I was—I think they were expecting us to play havoc on the plane. It was funny because every day we got on the plane, they're sitting there, we're just waving, "Hi guys, how are you?" you know, I remember the last day getting off the plane, and thank you guys, thanks for escorting us around <laughs> Australia. You find anybody? No, bye. They were so pissed off that they didn't yeah. arrest anybody. We were—we <laughs> knew who they were. It was great, and. Those were the days, weren't they? I must say, I remember that tour really well. It was huge. Back in a sec with more. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Great to have you here. We're talking all things status quo, and if you happen to be listening in the US and don't recognise their sound, it's because the band was largely ignored in Northern America after they abandoned psychedelia for that heavy boogie bluesy rock in the early 70s. Yeah, I think it did. I think people wanted to just come and see status quo, signing lots of all scraps and things, and grew the hair long, got the denim jeans and t-shirts and heads down boogie and all that, you know, that's what it was about. And that changed everything. I did it for about 20 years. But America was still ignoring status quo at that time, weren't they? Yeah, I think we, what we should have done, if I'd had my way, I think we would, would have uprooted from England and gone and lived in the States for a year and toured America and pushed ourselves because I think Fleetwood Mac did that and I think some other bands did. And I think, see, I remember you could play in Texas and you play in Indiana or whatever you call it and then California. In one state, they've heard of you 
another state, they've never even even heard of you. Another state, they remember you from the record that was on the radio. And it's really difficult. It's such a big place. And I think you need to spend lots of time there. We we were spoiled because we were big in Europe and big in the UK. Yeah. Like a promotion, I think, probably in America. That's what it was, really. Did that frustrate you? I think it did. But like I said, we couldn't quite go to go back home to England because we, we knew we were big in England, United Kingdom, Scandinavia and some other countries, you know, and it just, we were so pleased to be back. But I must admit, America in those days, in the 70s, I must admit, we did tour there a lot. And uh, do you know what? I, I never saw, and all the time we spent there, never saw a gun, never saw any trouble. Now, I think I think twice about going to America now. I can't work out what's what's gone wrong there. Ice in the Sun that was written by your former British pop star Marty Wilde became your second top yeah. ten hit. Um, uh, Marty Wilde was huge at the time, wasn't he? Yeah, Marty, yeah. I think he's still around now. I think he's uh, he's um, doing well, I believe, and uh, he wrote it for us. and It was great, you know. It was, uh, it was just nice to have people writing good songs for us. And, uh, of course, the band, Bobby Young, Rick Parfit, Anne Lancaster, Francis wrote some good stuff, and as Bob did, and um, you know, it was just nice to re recall some of their songs and some of the stuff we all got a chip in, like um, AB Blues on the B side. change had enhanced the appeal of status quo even though you were almost like a completely different band weren't you yeah i think we progressed along as we went along i think really the early matchstick men days we enjoyed playing to the audiences of course but i think we sort of felt a bit with that image out of place we didn't feel in our hearts it was right somehow and so we moved on thank god to bob young for changing everything because i think it as you know it works yeah, it sure did. In 1972, at the Reading and Great Western Festivals, you really became hot property. You got a record yeah. deal, and your first single for that new label was one called Paper Plane, and that yeah. just rocketed into the top ten in 73. Yeah. You were just in demand everywhere. How could you maintain such a hectic schedule at the time and have any sort of relationships at home? I mean, your feet wouldn't have touched the ground ever. No, I know. As the story goes, our first wives, and I think we've all had first ones, I mean, who doesn't these days? <laughs> and they didn't want us to go away. Oh, no, you can't go away. Well, just, what are you talking about? We just got married. You married a musician, a working musician. Of course we're going to go on tour. We're not going to start home all day. We played lots of festivals. Running Festival was great. Lincolnshire Festival was good. We played loads of festivals. You were a huge deal wherever you went. And once you seemed to find the formula that worked, you kept rolling it out. You kind of recycled that same simple boogie on each of the albums and singles that came, didn't you? Yeah, I think it was... Um, we realised it, it was all working properly and it was lovely. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got to a point where you think, you know, you can't do wrong. Forgive. 
we all like to drink, you know, and some of the guys like to smoke, but I somehow, when you get back to your accommodation, hotel, whatever it is, it takes three, three hours or more to, to calm down before you can actually crash out. You know, we'd always go to one, one, one of the band's rooms, have a drink, some wine or some, uh, or some beer, then say, yeah, good night and see you in the morning and uh, meet for breakfast, then carry on again. That's how it was. John Coughlin, you're doing this boogie all through the 70s. You're killing them wherever you're playing. And each album that you released went into the top five. And, of course, you had that huge number one single, Down Down, in 1974. Can you shed some light on that one? Well, I think it was a, a magnificent buzz for the band, seeing that we actually made a single go to number one. Every time we played that, the audience went mad, you know, massive cheers for it and they sing all the words and it's awesome and I just think I've had fans say to me oh John you know you've, you've made 14 albums and which is your favourite album what would you say it was your best single your best album and I said look we've made 14 and I always thought at the time the last album was you thought was always your best because you play it at home you know I don't really play any status quo stuff at home now at all really and I don't think I ever really did when I was touring because you're used to playing it on stage, you know, why would I listen to it at home? But, you know, Down Down was one of our favourites. Mystery Song was another one that I liked, and Rick, Rick sung that. And uh, to try and remember what was your best album, your best single, I always say the best thing to do is ask a status quo fan, they'll tell you which is the best one. <laughs> you know. often tell me that during that hectic period when you're really on top that it goes by in such a blur that your feet don't touch the ground you've got no memory of it people say to me oh I miss the 80s or I miss the 70s because we were so busy all the time I can really understand that because you're just on the go constantly you don't actually take time out to smell the roses at all no, I think there was, was a saying in those days if we weren't recording we were touring and if we weren't touring we were recording you know, then we would have a little bit of time at home, but it, I don't think it was enough, and I think we should have had longer. But having said that, it's easy to jump off the bandwagon and spend too much time at home. Then what you don't want to do at the time is lose your fans. You want to keep your fans because they've been good to you. And I mean, now I played recently down in the Butlins and Minehead where we all started. And the fans are coming up to me at the end saying, John, it's lovely to see you. Can I have a photo? So I had to do a signing session for an hour and a half. And I said to, to my wife, Jilly, I said, look, this is ridiculous. I left in 81. It's like I'm still with the band, you know, fans. Oh, I haven't, I've always wanted a photo with you. Can you sign this? Can you sign the T-shirt? When you get those fans and they stick with you through that period, they never leave you. That certainly proved to be the case with Status Quo because the league of fans just kept growing as each boogie kept rolling out. And I guess you really did the right thing. All those albums, all those singles just kept perpetuating the name of Status Quo, so it was always on the top of the charts. You got to yeah. a song like Roll Over, Lay Down in 75. It was very similar to Down Down in 74. It was very similar to Wild Side of Life in 76. They all intertwined and melded into each other, really, didn't they? Yeah, I think Roll Over, Down was a song I was trying to remember earlier. That's the one we all co-wrote, all of us. Yeah, that was good. It was a song that the audience loved that. And I think, you know, I didn't, as you know, I didn't really write songs, but the lads did. And I think, you know, one song was probably, dare I say, possibly nicked from the other song, you know, bits of ideas and things. But having said that, they're all good songs. They turned out well and the audience loved them. So we did the right thing, really.
music started going through a whole lot of different changes in itself in the late 70s, didn't it? And after the release in 1980 of the song Just Supposing, you got up and left the band in an extraordinary fashion. What yeah. happened? Had you simply had enough? Well, I think it was um, a combination of us um, probably not getting on. I think we were possibly uh, worn out a bit. And the, the guys are doing quite a bit of Bob Hope and uh, I was just having a glass of wine now and again and there was something terribly wrong with my, my headset and I think we were all tired and I just had, basically I I got to a point where I just needed a massive break I needed to get away from it for a while and I just think I've had enough here and I think I got back home to the man where I was living at the time and me and Shirley took I took a year off to recuperate and I think we went on holidays and I got back home then um, realised I needed to play drums again you know <laughs> it was still in your blood yeah John what were the circumstances around your leaving from what I've been told it appeared to be a really sudden decision you just got up from the drums and called it quits can you tell us in your words how it came about well I think it was um the band were getting involved in lots of things they shouldn't have done, and I wasn't happy about it. I think we're all exhausted. I think we were tired. What we should have done is that time off. I was in the studio. I wasn't very happy, and I don't know. It's it's difficult to explain. I just had enough. Instead, oh, then the next day, they said, "Oh, we've got to, the, the band wants to use a drum machine." And I burst out laughing, saying, "You tell me a drum machine can do a shuffle? It can't do a shuffle like me." And then they insisted, oh, no, we're, we're doing this. And Alan Lancaster was saying, oh, John would be all right in the morning, which is normal. You know, it was normal for me to be okay. If we'd had X, Y, and Z the night before, shouting, whatever, or having a row. Obviously, they got Pete Kircher to fly out and, and play. But uh, then I think Alan Lancaster wanted to, wanted to get me back to do, what was that massive concert? Live Aid. Al wanted me to do that, but I never got the phone call. So I said, oh, well, you know, then... The only turn up was 2013 and 14, much later on, you know, when we all got back together again. But while you were sitting in that studio at the time and you were totally fed up, the story is that you were tapping around and then you got up and kicked the whole drum kit apart, walked out of the studio, and that was that. Is that how it I think it, I don't know. I don't I think it may have knocked the floor time over or a symbol. I don't, I, you know. <laughs> so, uh, no, I just think it was. Um, you didn't throw a hissy fit quite as badly as what's been written about you. No, I know. I just think what we should have done is all stopped recording at the time, gone into one of the rooms at Sierra and sat down and talked about it, but that never happened. No, no one could be bothered. So, you know, you get to the point, well, let's talk about it, but then I don't think anybody could be bothered, really. Never thought I'd have a worry or need to be alone. Never thought I'd have a was known to fans as Spud or the Mad Turk. He was a sullen, mustachioed and mysterious figure behind the drum kit and according to reports was sometimes prone to volatile outbursts of temper. Mostly, however, he kept to himself. As he's already alluded to, as status quo's popularity soared during the 70s and into the next decade, so did their drug intake. The members became the cocaine gang, and if you weren't doing it, you were excluded. 
That's really what happened to John. With the madness escalating around him, he remained an outcast. On that fateful day in 1981, he just snapped, kicked his drums across the room and then boarded a flight from Switzerland, where the group had been working, to his home on the Isle of Man. Don't go anywhere. John Coughlin is just getting warmed up. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Welcome back. Status quo drummer John Coughlin has been sharing his story about the band's beginnings, its rise to fame, and that crazy rock and roll lifestyle, complete with drugs and alcohol, that cost him his place in the group. When he left, Quo quickly picked up the pieces by hiring Pete Kersher. Their 1982 album, 1 plus 9 plus 8 plus 2, was the first to feature Pete on drums. I guess they wrote this song in John's honour. this going on, John Coughlin managed to keep himself busy touring and recording with multiple projects and bands. Some four years later, bass player Alan Lancaster also quit status quo, leaving Francis Rossi and guitarist vocalist Rick Parfit to carry on the name. By the mid-90s, status quo had scored 50 British hit singles, which was more than any other band in rock and roll history at the time. I, I forgot to tell you what happens. When you leave a band that's known like that, you soon know who your who your friends are. You know, you want to make a phone call to someone, and they, and they sort of make an excuse because you're not in the band anymore. So you, you think, okay, fine, I can do without those people. And I did a thing with Partners in Crime. I made a, a, an album. I did sorry with the, the Diesel Band. I played with Noel Running, Eric Bell. I played with Chase Hodges, Phil Liner, Phil Liner, Chase. Yeah. The single was called We Are The Boys Who Make All The Noise. You shake my nerves and you run my brain Too much love drives a man insane You broke my will, but what a thrill Goodness grace is great balls of fire If you look at the video, if that is still about, you'll see Bev Bevan in the studio miming to the drums I did because I, I did the session because I was away somewhere. I, I don't, I can't remember what happened now, but I couldn't make the video shoot. It made a nice change. So after you'd been rocking all over the world, you settled back, took a bit of time out. The bugs still had you, and you started playing with a whole lot of other people until you then started your own band. Yeah, I think I got a call from a friend of mine in Lancashire, who's an agent, and he said, look, why don't you put a band together that plays all your quo stuff? He said, you're entitled to go out on the road with another band, playing all the hits you had, and which I did, you know, and then the John Cogman's quo, I did that for quite a long time. And it was good. I think having to play drums with those other musicians did help me in a big, a big way, you know, playing different music and stuff. And it was a nice uh, little test for me, and uh, I was really happy with that. So despite the tensions that had been around between you and Rick and Francis and Alan Lancaster, you managed to reunite for a, a special one-off session in 2012. How did they talk you into coming back to do that? Well, it was Alan, I think it was Alan G. Parker, who's uh, a friend of ours, and he got this idea about getting the four of us together to play together in Shepherd and Studios in um, England. And it was um, basically a studio for making movies, 
because it has soundproofing on the walls and ceilings and even the floor, I reckon. And the drum sound there was, was what I call very dry. It was horrible. And my, my lovely, lovely drum kit, which I've still got from the pictures and matches in men days, it's exactly the same one that Ringo had, the same colour and everything. Anyway, you know, I'm playing that. Oh, my God. Then we spent, I think, was it two two weeks? I think we rehearsed. Did we, no, did we just get together once? That's what I think we did. Then there was talk of a tour, and I said, yeah, I'm up for it. And Alan was, and, and Rick and Francis. So then we spent two weeks rehearsing for the um, British tour, I think it was. And that was the first tour you'd done together in some 32 years. Yeah, it was. It was quite Amazing. strange. It felt, felt quite different. The four original members of Status Quo came to be widely known as the Frantic Four. It was back to rocking all over the world. Terribly sober at the time, no drinking, <laughs> which is fine, you know, whatever. But then there's four, I said we should always do a tour of Europe. And I should, I think personally, we should have come to Australia and did a tour of Oz. That's what I, I think. Mm. Yeah. But also, what was interesting, a lot of people didn't know this, but when we finished the last Dublin gig, it was where it was filmed, you know, get the DVD out, where they filmed the concert. And um, that was good fun. And Rick Parfit said to Francis and Alan, I'd like to carry on doing this, other than doing what Quo does now. And I said, yeah, I'm up for it, and Alan was. Anyway, Francis didn't want to do it. He said, no, I want to do as what we're doing, you know, later. And uh, and Rick, he said, I'm not, you know, I don't really want to do that. And uh, Francis came up with the idea. Why don't you call it Status Quo PLC? PLC? Yeah, Parfit, Lancashire and Coughlin. Which we'd have had to get another musician's play to take Francis's place, of uh, course, but that, that could have been okay. But he was doing his own Co- solo stuff then, was he? Yeah, I think Co was obviously still together with Rick and wanted to do another tour, perhaps. But of course, then dear Rick passed away. Rick died, you know, yeah. and that was it. That was a shame. But what everyone's been saying is that thank God for 13 and 14 tours because. If we just said, oh, well, maybe one day we'll do it, then, of course, there's an old saying, it's always then too late. But thank God we did 13 and 14 for the fans. I mean, I was told, you'll love this story, we was told an Australian family flew to London to catch the three shows at Hammersmith, right? They copped all three shows. So think of the fare, the tickets, the cost of staying in a hotel. Yeah. Then they flew back to Australia. Then I presume went back to work, what they did, then flew back again for the last gig in Dublin. Now, think of that, you know. Uh, That's diehard fans. Yeah, and also someone told me that uh, a lot of the men they saw in the audience on on those shows were actually crying because it took them back to their days, you know, when whatever, when they got married or maybe or they had a party and whatever, took them back to the younger days when those singles were just released, you know, and the albums released. So it was lovely. It was great. It was very emotional. It was good fun. We all enjoyed it.
have ever thought that we'd be talking about status quo 50 something years later. I know it's amazing and also I'm also going to be doing um, something with a, a local radio called Whitney Radio and I think they're changing the name and I've all done one show with them Great. and I'm doing a, a thing John Coughlin's Rock Heaven and what it is I decided that I wanted my own program of playing music that I like like Led Zeppelin Rolling Stones ACDC loads of different types of music I wrote a big list of songs I hear and I think I'm going to have fun, mate. And the radio said, yeah, we'd love you to do it, Johnny. Do you want to do it every week? I said, no, let's do it once a month, see how we go. And I've got Ray Jackson from Linda Swan, a friend of mine, who's going to come in on the first show. So it really is nice playing the pre-record, of course. John Coughlin, you say that you made a list of all your favourite songs. What comes in at number one on your list of all-time favourite songs? From any band. Yeah, I've got a list in the other room there. I suppose it could, oh, I don't know, it could be uh, Brown Sugar from the Rolling Stones, it could be uh, something from the Cause. Oh, lo- I've got loads. John Farnham, yeah, that's that's um, another one. Uh, oh, The Voice, I love that. Give me a list. Thank you, darling. And your wife, I believe, is a very famous person in her own right. So she's not yes. just the wife of a famous rock star, but she's uh, competed in and won so many television quiz shows over the years, from The Weakest yeah, she... Link and Sale of the Century International. She actually represented England in that one. She's amazing. Would you like to speak to her? <laughs> no, she says... She's not dressed for it. <laughs> That's not camera ready. No, well, you just congratulate yeah. her for us. On my list, I've got music, John Miles, SOS, Over, Runaway, The Cause, Uptown, Uptown Girl, Billy Joel, Simply the Best, Tina Turner, New Flame, Simply Red, and it goes on. A lot of songs that I hear on the radio, oh, yeah, I put that on my show. <laughs> Fantastic. You know, and, John, your favourite status quo song? I think single would have to be, as it's always been, mystery song, sung by Rick Parfit. status quo. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. It's been good talking to you. Thank you, darling. If you'd like to learn more about John, you might want to get yourself a copy of his recently released book called Spud, 
It's all about his life and times, both with and without status quo. You can order it through the website johncoglan.com. Thanks again for your company today. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. Don't forget, if you'd like to request a special guest, just get in touch with me through the website, abreathoffreshair.com.au. Until we meet again same time next week, do have lots of fun, won't you? I'll look forward to being back in your company again then. Bye now. Because it's a beautiful day mm-hmm. You've been listening to A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day.